Welcome to another edition of the Basketball Teacher Podcast. Our mission is to bring you discussions on a wide array of topics in the coaching world to grow players on and off the court. You can connect with us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, and also reach us directly through email at basketballteacherpodcast at gmail.com. Now, here's your host, Coach Mike Hernandez. Welcome again, and thank you for joining us on whatever platform you're listening on. Uh, Today's topic is focusing on building a program specifically in a small school environment. There's a real famous book. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of it. It's called Make the Big Time Where You Are, and I think that that theme and that message is going to kind of carry through as we discuss this topic today. Um, and here to discuss this topic with me is Coach Eric Kudranovich, or Coach K, if you would want to refer to him as that as well. Uh, Coach, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you. And, I, and I'm looking forward to getting into this as somebody who grew up in a big high school environment, who currently teaches at a rather large high school. I don't have tons of knowledge. Uh, about the small school environment. So this is going to be an informative conversation for me as well. But before we get into that, Coach, I want to spend some time going into your basketball journey, your coaching journey. So can you tell us where basketball has taken you and where it is you're currently at right now? Yeah, it's a great start. Uh, As far as my basketball journey uh, began uh, back in the 90s, actually. I was at college at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. just going through my gen eds and, and working towards my major, which ultimately would be elementary and, and middle school education. And my high school coach approached me and said, you know, I think you should, should really think about helping us out. I, I think you've got a mind for it. I, th- I think it's something you may want to do as you pursue education. So for two seasons, I sat on his bench as a varsity assistant. Um, not really much with the X's and O's. That was his forte. He was a Hall of Fame coach in the state of Wisconsin. So I was just blessed to sit next to him and take as much knowledge and as much detail as I could from what I was watching. Um, But he kind of gave me a chance to work with player development, which is something that I will talk about probably a little bit later, but something I'm really big on. So I got to work with, you know, some of our different players on that team. We actually happened to have a back-to-back regional championship team. Uh, both Both teams lost in the regional championship those two seasons, but that caliber of a team. And it was great to work with guys, not only that, had the skill and then to take them to the next level but also bring guys who maybe were a little bit behind maybe your bench players and bring them to a level where when they go out onto the court they could contribute and help that team um, so that's where it started just as a volunteer assistant which I think a lot of coaches can relate to where you just want to soak it in and see is this for me and is this something I want to do and after those two years I was hooked like it was one of those things where I'm like this is what I can see myself doing in the future and not only was it coaching, but it was also when I was at UW-Platteville, I was going through those education classes that I'm like, teaching is definitely for me. This is what I'm meant to do. This is what I need to do. And so I worked really diligent at both. Um, and then that leads me to my first teaching job. So the 90s end, I'm done at Platteville, and I get my first teaching job at Benton High School, which is in Benton, Wisconsin, kind of near the Illinois border. And I'm hired there to teach elementary school, which I'm excited to do but I also get hired as the junior high coach. And I get to coach both the seventh and the eighth grade team. Because at that time, they had a hard time finding a coach to do both. So I was like, I'll do both. Um, What I loved both, what I loved about doing both was it kind of gave you the head coach feel, 
but yet you're really not the head coach of, say, a junior varsity or a high school program or even at a collegiate program. And I did that for four seasons. Um, the first team I had was a team of kids that thirst, had a thirst for basketball, but they needed to really develop as players. Um, so it's kind of up and down. By the time I got done there, after my four years, I had a team that went undefeated, and those kids just loved and soaked up everything there was about basketball, especially the part of player development. We, had, we asked them to come in and practice. They were always there getting better. Um, so that was really fun. It was a great experience. I learned leadership skills, my organization skills that I take today with me to practices because you have to organize a seventh and an eighth grade practice. Kids with varying uh, abilities and how you're going to put that all together so that everybody gets better during that time that you're in the gym. Um, again, with the practice development, player development, and then ultimately those same teams that I had in junior high, those kids went on to win five straight conference titles, four regional titles, a sectional title, and the school's only basketball state title. And I'm not saying that from the success standpoint, but it's that if you show that love for basketball to kids and truly what it means to be a basketball player, then they take and run with it. It's just a beautiful thing to see. And then that takes me to Scales Mound after my four years at Benton, um, where I currently am. I was a third grade teacher. That's what I got hired to do after a couple of years of being the third grade teacher, the basketball position opened up. Um, they had just gone 0-27. So the position was one you had to think about for a moment. For some people, for me, it was a no-brainer. I'm going to take this because my whole thought process was let's put this process that we've been working on through the few, first few experiences, let's work hard, and let's turn this thing around. Um, and so now I've been doing it for 14 seasons. I've loved every season. All of the players that have come through our program, the family as we call it, I have the utmost respect for every one of those kids and the time they put into our program and the things that we've been able to do at Scales Mound. In the 14 seasons, just to add to that, we've uh, been able to go double-digit victories. That's kind of a big thing for us. Let's get to double-digit victories. Uh, we've done that 10 out of the 14 seasons at a school with an enrollment. Our enrollment has never been more than 75 kids in the high school. Not 75 kids in a class, but 75 kids in the entire high school. That's boys and girls. So I'm pulling wow. from a group of about 30 to 40 boys each year. Last year, we, our program had 27 boys out for basketball in a high school of 75 kids. Uh, so we've done some things over time, and I'll allude to that a little bit later. What are some of the things that we've done in a school this small? Um, but ultimately, with those 10 out of 14 double-digit seasons, we've also won 162 games, three regional titles, and uh, just really blessed with the kids that have come through. This last season, we went 24-9. and nine. We finished second in our conference, which is always traditionally sending teams to the sectional and sometimes the super sectional level. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just really pleased with the direction, not only where the kids have taken it, but where the community has. And I'll talk about that a little bit later too, as far as what the community has done over the 14 seasons to really change what our program looks like. So that's kind of my basketball journey up to this, this point. Started once upon a time back in the late 90s, <laughs> did some volunteer work, did some junior high, which was immeasurable. Uh, for some of those people who don't believe coaching at the junior high level is something they want to do, I suggest it highly. It's a great, great time to hone some of your skills. And then at the high school level, I've been very pleased. So that's where I'm at for this point. 
Well, I, I can reiterate, especially the part you said about the high school level, because that's where, where I started too. Uh, I, I knew I loved teaching and I knew I loved sport and I was a little unsure as to whether or not I was going to be qualified to be doing it at a high school level. But I thought, well, I could probably do this at a junior high level. And it's exactly like what you said. I was able to hone my skills and sort of develop my own voice as a coach. And it, it helped me tremendously to get to that high school level. And it seems to me... Um, that and i think you would agree like if you if you love teaching and and you love sports especially if you played it it almost seems like it's a no-brainer to at least consider going into coaching oh definitely yeah and i always loved everything that there was about school i mean mm -hmm. some kids have the the positives or the negatives and you can hear them voice that but i was a kid always loved school like i couldn't wait to go to it i loved everything about it um and ultimately i think that's why i'm an educator and the same goes with, with sports i was a I played four sports back in high school, loved everything about sports, the competition, yeah. the, the camaraderie, the teamwork. And I think naturally that's why it also led into coaching. So yeah. I would completely agree with you. Absolutely. Especially if that camaraderie part, it, it's huge. So what I wanted to get into before focusing on, on just the, the small school environment itself is, is the concept of uh, students playing multiple sports. I, I feel like we're, Every year we get more and more into this idea of specialization where players are playing one sport year round, whether it's basketball or, or, or softball, football, whatever the case may be. But you're in a situation with uh, players who are multi-sport athletes and you as well are also, also a multi-sport coach. So there's kind of two parts to this. Why is it important for a player, on a player's perspective, for players to not just specialize in playing basketball and also why should coaches also consider branching out and if they're able to coaching other sports besides just basketball? Excellent, excellent question. Um, I'll, I'll address the first part with the multi-sport athlete. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as that, I've always looked at it from one standpoint and one standpoint only and it's competition. It's the ability to compete in different ways. If you specialize, you're going to compete in that sport, that skill, but it's only going to be a select number of times. When we practice, we would like to think that our practices are going to be the best 100% of us all the time. But as we know better, practices sometimes can be the worst enemy to all players because you're not being able to push yourself, especially if that practice is you and yourself. It needs to be other players that are there that may have more skill than you at certain things that are going to push you and make you better. So one for me is competition. If I'm a football-only guy, I play nine games a year. That's it. I compete nine times. The rest of the time I'm practicing, I'm lifting weights, I'm doing certain things, but the actual out there competing is nine times, nine times only. So now I take the football and the basketball player who competed nine times and practiced through the, all those competitions and practices, whatever they were, those drills. And then we jump into a basketball season, which obviously also has other skills because that's the other part of the, of the equation is you're taking competition, but you're also adding different kinds of skills. To be a football player, it's really base up. Strong legs, strong base, your ability to tackle, your ability to block, your ability to push, your ability to run, all those things that you have to do on the football field. When you get to the basketball court, you can be strong based, but you also have to be now agile. You have to be able to move left, right, in, out very quickly. You have to be able to do a variety of different movements. <clears throat> so therefore, you go back to competing, now you're adding say 25 games to that. So you're now competing 30 plus games, 30 plus times, plus practices. And then you get to the spring sports, whether it's track, whether it's baseball, whether it's something else, 
well, you're going to be competing again. And so to me, it's always that situation with competition. Now, where does that go? It goes to when are you in those moments? So I look at the athlete that's competed in, say, three different sports throughout a whole year. When they get into those crunch time moments, they've been there before. They know what it's like. They know how to react. They're going to be better adapt to it. Now, for the one for the person who maybe specializes, the first time they're going to be in that tough situation, it may go their way. Most likely it's not going to because we learn a lot from the situations in which we fail. So then they have to go back and somehow get into that situation and repeat that a certain number of times. And for me, that person who competes year round, that person who competes sport after sport after sport is going to be a lot more comfortable in those situations. Mm -hmm. It also goes back to the coaching. I think the multi-sport coaches feel the same way. I've been an offensive coordinator for our football program for the last 10 years. I've been the head basketball coach for the last 14. I can see where those two have intertwined, where I get in situations, I'm the least nervous person probably in the entire gym. Mm -hmm. I've already been through that. I've already played it out in my mind. Mm -hmm. I've already done that so many times that I know how it's going to go, or I have a pretty good idea of how it's about to go. If you go back 10 years ago when I was in that for the first time, Oh, I was as nervous as anybody. <laughs> I'm sweating. I'm shaking. I can't even think right. I, mean, I don't even know what the next play is going to be because I'm so nervous about the play that's being run. Where now I'm sitting there going, okay, I know we're going to do this. Most likely this is what's going to happen. So we'll set up this situation. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we're going to go with this. And so my mind is playing ahead versus always playing behind. And so that's where I think multi-sport coaches, multi-sport athletes gain an advantage is being in all of those situations. It's no different than the chess player that plays match after match after match after match or anybody else the more you do something the more adept you get to being able to be in those situations but I also think for a multi-sport coach it's a great situation to learn the sports learn how athletes are in different settings because that's the other part of being a coach is you have to learn how your athletes can handle those situations yep. I'm not gonna put the ball in a certain player's hands if I know they can't handle that moment and maybe I saw that on a football field Maybe I saw that on a baseball diamond. Maybe I saw that in the track season. Or maybe I've seen it in practice at basketball. But that's where you gain all that information that you're ultimately going to use to put your team together. So, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. But I think competition and then I think ultimately being in those situations and having just that calmness or that sort of ability to handle it comes from all of that. Well, I definitely agree about, about the competition part. I think from a coaching perspective and an athlete's perspective, the more competition you, you experience as a player, the more kind of used to it you get and the more that it, you're not overwhelmed by it. And the same thing as a coach as well. And, and I like to, to also you know, point out for, for coaches, and you know that the way that you maybe talk to a football player is going to have to be a, a little bit different and it kind of maybe has to change your your perspective in coaching i know when i coach softball having to talk to a pitcher trying to get her to throw a strike is a lot different than than me trying to run an offense and so there's different ways to i think for you to learn different coaching styles it, it reminds me also really quickly of a, of a girl who i had a couple of years ago who was on my basketball team and she played golf and she played uh, tennis, which are very individual sports. And so for her, getting up on the free throw line, it wasn't that big of a deal because she's so used to eyes being on her and her like being responsible for doing something as an individual that, you know, she, she had those skills already developed. So uh, yeah, definitely mental and physical things, uh, so many advantages to it. I know a lot of people worry about time, but have you found that 
you're, you've been able to make that work with managing time with, with multiple sports? Is it just a thing for you where you just have to divide up your time? How do you kind of organize your time to make sure that you're adequately balancing the, the coaching, the teaching, and, and, and also obviously your personal and family life? Yeah, that's a great, great question too. As far as, you know, and that's the biggest thing I, I think you hit on it there with this answer is you have to be able to balance it. But at the same time, you have to be very organized. I think it goes back to even when I was a junior high coach and I started to learn what organization really was just within a practice. But then as life starts to happen, you know, then I've gotten married. Since then, I've got three kids, three beautiful daughters. Um, One's 16, one's 14, and the other one, she's going to be a fourth grader. So, you know, that has changed our life a lot too. But with it, just like anything else, you adapt, you move on, and, and you learn how to organize it all. And it's been definitely something that's, been challenging at times but at the same time it's been ultimately rewarding so you know you have to find that way to organize it but also with the athletes I think they they amaze you sometimes they amaze me how well they can adapt to organizing their own lives to make everything fit whether it's an early morning workout whether it's a late night workout whether it's some sort of practices during the season to mix in with their academics and other things that they may be doing Um, so yeah it's just organization is key and then that's also something that's going to take those athletes that are organizing throughout those practices that's a skill they're going to use for the rest of their life and and to be successful absolutely time management is essential for players uh for for coaches we all got to make sure we're managing our time and and keeping ourselves organized okay so let's let's get into the uh small school environment the the small school focus here so you mentioned about your school size about the 75 kids in total and so one of the concerns many coaches have if they're going to take over a small school or looking at a small school job is, uh, how am I going to find the bodies? How am I going to find any talent? How am I going to get anybody to come out and get, get our players where they want to be? Um, for you having uh, you know, 27 boys uh, a tryout out of a, a school of 75, was, was finding – bodies was finding people to come out was that ever a concern of yours um why or why not has has being a small school been an obstacle uh in in terms of building your team and getting players yeah as far as for myself i mean i grew up in a pretty rural area so small town or small school basketball to me is kind of normal i mean i saw what it was like when i went through and my head coach he worked with the youth which ultimately would feed his program later. Um, when I started at Benton as the junior high coach, I also saw how they work with the youth and how that's going to feed the program later. So I already had those ideas. I'd already seen what it kind of looks like. If I would have started maybe at a larger school and maybe not seen how that inner working needed to be done at a smaller school or maybe some other atmosphere that maybe I didn't know that that needed to be done, it might've been difficult, but I, from the get go, right? Like I said, when I applied for the job and, you know, accepted it and was given the opportunity to coach right away, I was like, okay, this is how we're going to turn this around. I knew what we had to do. I knew we had to start working with the youth. So what we started to do, and I I remember my first summer contact day vividly. I mean, it was almost 15 years ago, but I remember it just like it was yesterday where I opened the gym and I had three guys there. Now I'm expecting 20 guys. I've got three there. One is going to be a sophomore and the other two are going to be freshmen. Okay. They're eighth graders. I'm like, Hey, where are all the guys at? And they're like, what are you talking about coach? I'm like, well, this is a summer contact day and I've got 20 more of these planned. Well, we don't really get together in the summer. I'm like, well, that's going to change. 
So I think as a coach, at times, you're going to get to those avenues. You're going to get to those intersections where you have to go, okay, this is what I want it to look like, but how do I get there? So from that first summer, I just remember it was a struggle to get guys in, but I remember that basketball season, and as we got to that next off season, I started to say, this is how the summer is going to look. I know you're going to have jobs. I know you're going to be doing this or that or that or this, but we're going to be in here 20 days, and this is what we're going to do. And that second summer, I had 15 to 20 guys. And since that moment, those summer contact days have been the same. I've got 15 to 20 guys. Sometimes I even get five to 10 alumni guys who just stop in because they know we're there because those were guys who had been down that road before. Um, So it's just been a work in progress that way. But then ultimately as that, that time passes after that first summer contact day, I realized too mentally as a coach, I'm like, well, there's going to be more work ahead of ourselves. So what I started to do then is on Saturday mornings for three months, we started to do a basketball camp basically. It was free of charge. I didn't want to charge anybody because I didn't want somebody to, whether it be for economic purposes or what other purposes, not given that chance to play the great game of basketball. So we just, I just donated my time. I, my basketball players, I went to them and said, hey, will you guys be willing to give up a Saturday morning during the season to help our future Hornets? And they're like, well, yeah, we'll do that. I said, we'll just not have practice that day. We'll just count that as our practice, but we're going to help our youth. And so the guys were like, okay, let's do it. So they became the teachers, they became the basketball coaches, and we would bring in our youth. Kindergarten through second grade would do very basic, just dribbling and passing, and we're talking as basic as basic of skills. And then we'd take our third through eighth graders, we'd bring them in at a different time, and now we'd start working on some of your basic one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three type stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, screening, passing, other things. And this started 14 years ago. and some of the first groups we ever had have just gone through the high school. So it was really cool to see the development of these little guys and girls, because we brought the boys and the girls in, to watch how little they were. And some of them had a long ways to go. And then also just watch how they honed their skills over time to turn out to be some pretty talented players. Um, and then ultimately, we had a parent group. It's, it's our booster group. Because I'm like, we have one more component we got to add to this. And that's getting our kids to travel. And we didn't want them to travel very far but we wanted to play school, other schools. So they got that feel of what it was like to play with our kids, just Scales Mound kids. Um, So we started to do that. And that's our current sophomore group that's going to be juniors. And last year, our sophomore group that's going to be juniors. And last year, our sophomore group went 20 stars, didn't even play JV. They played with just the varsity, which went 24-9. So it's obviously paid off there too, where they started to travel to some of the local towns and play five on five games. So we started that about eight years ago too. So all of it took time to put in place, but where we've got it now, it's a pretty unique thing to see. Well, something that, that you touched on there that at the end kind of got me thinking about in, in a small town and in a small school environment, I, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think perhaps one of the advantages too that you might have at Scales Mound is that you do have parent involvement in the sense that because it's a small town, uh, high school sports and high school athletics, are, are they kind of important to the town or do they kind of rally around like high school sports? Oh, 100%. I mean, that's a great point you just brought up because, you know, I think back to this past basketball season and I remember at least five or six of our home games, we had standing room only. Um, our gym fits somewhere between 800 to 1,000 people. And depending on the opponent that came in, uh, it was standing room only because our side was packed. And our side's all like our contingent is always full. 
but because of the opponents that we were playing that night too, they brought a large contingency of people too. So we'd have a sand room only. So they support our kids 100%. It doesn't matter if it's a youth game on a Saturday morning, you might see a couple hundred people there watching fourth graders play basketball. I mean, they will come out and they will support. And, and the parents have always been that way. The community has always been that way. And that's why we just had to add those other components because now I truly feel like we have a small school program in place from the skill and drill that our youth kids get all the way up to the fact that they get a chance to play. And then the unique thing too, is that some of our alumni, both on the boys and the girls program are now some of those youth coaches. So it's so fun to go to them and go back and watch them be those coaches that came through your program. So yeah, it's just a very unique thing. It really is for small school, you know, and, and you can probably go to many, many small schools and they will say the same thing that the community support and the parent support is tremendous. And I would say the same at Scales Mound. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a huge asset. I think that's a huge benefit where you could have like the parents who are invested, the parents who want to help and they want to be involved and they want to support as best that they can. Uh, I know sometimes at bigger schools, that isn't necessarily the case. The community doesn't necessarily rally around uh, uh, the sports as much just because of how big the school is or how big the city is. You know, I teach in Phoenix, so <laughs> yeah, it is definitely is a little bit different. Uh, then it might be in an area like Scales Mound. So that's actually a, possibly a huge advantage as well. Okay. I think but, it's a huge advantage, yep. yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something to, to consider. And actually, I want to just, just ask one, one more question with that. Uh, some coaches are <laughs> they're not quite sure as to how their, the, the parents or how like the community members can, can can really support a team besides like coming out and like supporting uh, during games. What is what is your parent groups or what have your uh, community members been able to do to to kind of support and kind of help your team along besides just showing up at games? Basically, how can coaches kind of utilize their parents as as like positive resources? That's a great question. Um, as far as you know. The resources we've been able to use, especially when we got from the skill and drill of the kind of basketball camp to where we actually got the kids together, is that we went to some of the parents and asked, can you form this group that basically becomes like a booster group? Mm -hmm. So then those parents are out. They're the ones who are working, raising money to, to provide the uniforms, to provide some of the things that these kids need, whether it's the baseball program in the summer, the bats, the equipment, whether it's the basketball programs in the winter where they need uniforms, whatever else then ultimately they also become coaches because when you work that hard and you know this through your years of education and coaching, when you become fully invested into something, it's hard to let go of it. Mm -hmm. so the same goes with these parents when they become invested in it and they know that their son or their daughter is playing at these venues or whatever else. And, and they got to help support that, but they're going to be the ones in there helping to do the work, but also getting these kids where they need to go. And then that becomes, that investment at an early age, whether it's third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, wherever it starts, then it moves through junior high, and then it moves into the high school, and then you have that great parent involvement throughout. Um, yeah. And every parent is going to be involved. We know that. But at the same time, as many of them as we can get involved, we do. And like right. I said, the parents have been excellent about doing their part. Well, 
I think that's that's a great point is that if you are doing the, those youth camps or, or leading those group sessions at a young age and you're do, working with the, the younger grades, well, those younger kids, they have parents that are supporting their young child. And then eventually those younger children, a lot of them are going to go to play basketball for you. And those parents are going to remember the, the work that you did with their kid at a young age. And they'll probably be more receptive and willing to help out. And they'll be excited to help out. Um, because of all the work that you did with their child at a younger age. So it seems like that, that that's a huge benefit too. Definitely. Um, yeah. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about a little bit about your team building and your philosophy of how you've established your team and your culture kind of within this small school environment. You, you talked uh, off air with me a little bit about your philosophy of running, about, about being athletic and kind of being free. Um, what what does that like look like on the court in a game of being running and athletic and and what are you doing in the practice and in the off season to make sure that your players know that this is what you expect from them and this is the level of intensity they need in order to be successful excellent question yeah as far as and we'll just start with say today as we lead up to next season um in the summertime it starts with off-season workouts uh, we expect, and one thing we talk about all the time with our kids is, are you better today than you were yesterday? And that's in all facets of life. You know, are you a better brother? Are you a better son? Are you a better student athlete? Are you a better athlete? We always talk about today. Are you better today than you were yesterday? So right now, I've got a whole bunch of athletes that are at home asking them that same question. Are they better today than they were yesterday? So they got to put the work in. And that's both in the gym, working on their shot, working on some of the, the fundamental skills that I'll get to here in just a bit. And then ultimately, that's also their bodies. They got to get working in the weight room, eat right, do those things. As we get into the season then, from the get-go, and again, we go back to that. We talk about as soon as they cross that threshold to come into our gym to practice. Um, because for us, you know, it's not just you get to practice because you're on the team. You're walking into this gym, and that, that's a great privilege that you have that you now have to work for that. And so they're going to work. And that starts with me. It's always been work, work, work. And, and we have fun with it, but we have a work mentality. So every drill we do, there's going to be an end result. There's got to be work done to it. Um, so the first thing we talk about is running. A lot of our drills in the first two weeks of the season, so now we're in early November, season has just started, a lot of our drills, and I'm not going to make my guys run just to run. There are the co those coaches out there that are like, you know, let's get on the line. Let's do this. <laughs> you don't get a ball for the first week because we're just going to run, run, run. We'll get the balls out later when you guys have proven to me we're in shape, whatever. Yeah. Our basketballs are out from the first drill. Um, and there's a reason for that, and I'll talk about it in just in a split second. But when we're in early November right now, we are, we're talking about running in all of our drills. We're getting up and down the court. Now, we're going to take some breaks, and we're going to give the kids a chance to rehydrate and whatever else, but we're going to be going at a high level from the get-go. And it looks kind of out of control at times, as it will in early November, but we'll rein that in as we go. Um, but some of, the, some of the key things we're also working in November, because we have to play kind of free, as I would say, because in a small school, I don't have six, seven, six, eight six, five kids every year. Some years I've had that. Some years I've had a couple six, six kids and it's great. But there was also a team I had three years ago. We didn't have one player over six, one. Most of our players were probably about five, 10. So it makes it a very challenging situation if we don't kind of teach wide open sort of 
free basketball. What I mean by that is all of our players dribble. They all are asked to dribble. I, I treat all of my players as if they are a point guard. If he's the 6'5 center, and I've had this before, I had a, an all-state caliber player probably about a decade ago. He went on to play D2 football. He, could, he was my point guard against certain types of teams. When a team would man press us, he most likely drew the center, who was probably about 6'5 to 6'7, didn't want to guard you anywhere outside of the paint. Mm-hmm. We'd just set a screen. He'd get the ball. Well, obviously our point guard is very tightly guarded by that team's probably best defender. Well, he'd just clear out, and our 6'5 guy would bring the ball up, and that center didn't want to guard him anywhere away from the basket. It was easy for us to break that pressure. Yeah. Um, things like that, just little things. So that's kind of why. So when we start back in November, we're there. The first drills we're doing are dribbling drills. It's one ball. It's two ball. It's all the things you would see probably most likely at a summer camp or, or a skill and drill type camp for point guards. All our guys are required to do it and do it well. And if you came into our practices, you would see from our smallest to our point guards and even up to our biggest guys, they can all handle it. So then that leads to our post game. I ask all of our guys to have a post game. We have five to six key post moves. And I think this all goes back to my young days of basketball camp. And being at UW-Platteville when Coach Bo Ryan just happened to be there before he went to Milwaukee and ultimately had success at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. But he always taught five different post moves in his camps. And for anybody who's ever gone to a Bo Ryan basketball camp, they will know exactly what they are. <laughs> um, so, and, and most of them were like straight pivot, reverse pivot, those types. But he had names, NBA player names for them all. So we have those same post moves because all of my players have to be able to score in the post. Um, and some of that kind of goes back to the Wisconsin influence because Coach Ryan's swing offense, everybody looks to score in the post. If you have that advantage, we'll get you the ball in there and you'll look to score. Mm-hmm. So we had the post game. Then we really focus a lot on the technique of shooting, shooting on and off the dribble, shooting just squared up, just various things. So those are kind of some of those key things that we work on. Most of our offensive sets are 4-1 or 5-0, which means we have four out, one in, or we're going straight five out. Um, we do a lot of with the dribble drive, motion offense, um, cutting. We have some of the Princeton concepts where we have the backdoor cuts or we have some screens or some fake screens, some reject screens or take the screens, things. Um, just a variety of different ways to get our kids moving. So we're trying to utilize the dribble to get to areas or we're trying to utilize skill or speed. And we start that from the minute we get the rebound. Because that's another thing that we do in our practices. We practice rebounding for about 30 minutes of practice. There's probably not too many coaches that I <laughs> that even dedicate time in practice to rebounding. They just assume that's a skill you're going to get in the game. Yeah. We do an actual 30 minutes, and there's a variety of drills that I have. Where there's one where we're – kind of goes back to Dennis Rodman, where we're reading the ball off the rim. We're reading the trajectory. Right. Reading and reacting to a rebound. There's another one where we're actually going through the technique of just a two-foot hop to go up and high point a basketball, much like a football player would high mm-hmm. point a pass. You know, so there's a variety of drills, but we work on rebound. But then from rebound, we go to outlet. From outlet, we go yeah. to run. And we're trying to score as quickly as we can, play fast or play faster sometimes. When it goes to the tip of the, the opening tip of the game, we have three plays off of the tip. There's probably some coaches out there that don't have a single play off of the tip. We've got three based on how the teams align. And that comes with experience, too, where you know how teams are probably going to line up at the center circle, whether it's through scouting or whether it's through where just most kids line up. And we've got plays where we've scored two seconds into a game simply because 
of the situation. So we're trying to go as fast as we can and score baskets however we can. So those are just some interesting parts. I could go into great detail probably for hours, <laughs> all, these, all these ways in which we can run. But the key for us is once the ball is in the air, we're trying to get that ball, fill our lanes, get down the court. And ultimately the reason why we play fast is if we can score before the defense is set up, we're most likely going to get a better looking shot. Some teams are very skilled in the defensive half court where it's almost worse to go up against their half court than try to get something in the running game. So those are some things. So. And, and so with that, with, with all of this running and, and, and with all of the just getting out in transition and, and trying to get your looks as quickly as possible, how, how deep uh, of, of a team do you need to have in a, in a game situation? How deep do you need to go in your bench to make sure that you can keep your guys just, just fresh? And, and are you just throwing bodies at them? How does that process work? Yeah, as far as for us, I mean, it just depends on the year because that, that is the one drawback to a small school is that not every year I've got 15 guys where I can rotate maybe three groups of five or even 10 for that matter where I can just go five in, five out. The last few years I've been able to do that. And sometimes it just depends on the situations. A lot of the times I like to go about three at a time. Um, but as much of an onus as we put on running and conditioning throughout our practices – because we've always said to our guys, I know a lot of coaches say this sediment, but at the same time, it has to be true. We want our practice to be more difficult than any game they're going to play in. Yep. So therefore, we truly try to make it that way. So that when we get to some games, the guys have made that comment. We're like, hey, Coach K, that, that really wasn't that hard. I, practices have been harder. And I'm like, good. That means we're getting to where we have to go. But, you know, that's where we want to be, where some guys might have to run for a quarter straight. They might get that time out. Maybe I'll give them a little break after that quarter because somebody else will go. But it just kind of depends on the opponent in the situation. We're not truly like a five in, five out, um, anything like that. But I would say for most part, it's kind of three at a time. Like there's a lot of times where maybe about four to five minutes into a quarter, you'll see me send three guys in. A couple guys might stay. We'll bring out those three. And there'll just be a quick turnaround where maybe two or three of those guys will go back in. Or I'll have another um, so it just kind of depends. Right. Well, uh, I think in, in terms of the uh, also in terms of just knowing your personnel. And like you said, if the practices are harder than the games, then then your players are, sound like they're conditioned. They, they know what's expected. And, and if they're running really hard in practice, um, they'll, they'll kind of know the, the stamina and, and the endurance factor that's going to be needed in, in a game so that you can adjust accordingly. Um, and, and something you, you, you mentioned, and you even mentioned it itself, that it's a little different than most coaches. I want to touch on the rebounding part really quickly. Uh, it, it's fascinating because uh, there are coaches who really want to get out and run. They, they want to be, you know, athletic. We're going to get out and transition. We're going to do this, that, and the other. But in some programs, there's a lack of an emphasis on even rebounding, which is obviously important in order to get the outlet and transition and start going. Uh, I, I've I've heard so many different things about rebounding from uh, certain certain drills versus like uh, just just get the ball like that's all you need is just to get the ball and want to get the ball you don't need, you don't need to worry about anything else. It, are there certain principles? I, I know you mentioned about about the you know just looking at the angles and everything like that. Are there certain principles that you're emphasizing to make sure that you're able to get that rebound and then get to that outlet uh, right away? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Probably going to give you some inside info that I don't, really, <laughs> I don't really even give to other coaches just because 
it's stuff that, you know, I've generated over time and just yeah, stuff yeah. I've come across. But actually one, one thing that starts for us, and I mean, you could come into my gym right now and I wouldn't be there and you could just ask, ask the guys, what's the one thing Coach K says about rebounding? And they'll probably all say to you, the piranha pit. And what I mean by that is if you truly look at most high school gyms and the same would go for the pro game, it would probably be more of the restricted circle area. But in a high school gym, most of the time there's a volleyball line that cuts right across kind of the bottom third of the lane. And if you ever watch a basketball game enough, if you look at there's kind of a rectangle that the lane and that volleyball line makes, very, very, very rarely do the rebounds fall in there. If they do, they're the ones that maybe catch just a little bit of the front of the rim and they come straight down. But if you ever watch a high school game, where do most of the athletes go running as soon as a shot goes up? They run into <laughs> the area. Yep. Well, we teach our kids right away. And I have young kids. I'll have it this fall where some of our incoming freshmen, some of our younger kids, as soon as the shot goes up, they're just going to go running in there because that's where they think the rebounds are going to go. And our older guys, they'll stay outside the piranha pit and they'll be grabbing rebound after rebound after rebound. <laughs> And those young guys would be like, I just can't get a rebound. Well, part of it is that situation. So some of it is the actual understanding of where do most rebounds go. And then the game today, and I, I saw, I can't remember where it was. I know it was on Twitter, but from whom, where they showed NBA three-point shots and college three-point shots in the 80s and the 90s compared to the 2000s and the 10s and how much the three-point line is pretty much where the shots are taken to this day. There's still some elbow shots and there's still obviously the layups and the dunks, but yeah. the majority of shots are taken from the three point line. So we talk about with our kids too, the longer the shot, the longer the rebound. Most of those rebounds aren't going to stay around that rim. So they also have to understand where is the shot being taken from? If it's taken inside that 15 foot area, most likely it's going to be around the rim. If it's taken outside that three point line, you're talking about long rebounds. And those are the ones we want to run on. Those are the ones where we stay away from the basket. As soon as they carry them off, we make sure we have a body between our we're between our man and the ball, or the ball or our man and the hoop. Yep. Get that body on them. We grab that ball and we are off in our lanes and we are running. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's some details like that that we work on every day. Like I said, there's some to the technique, but the main technique we always talk about is you need to be between your man or whomever because sometimes guys are coming off screen, sometimes guys are wheeling to different areas. You just have to be between the, the player you're boxing out and the rim. And then we, we do focus on boxing out a lot um, and the physicality of that. Not being physical in boxing out, but being within that area where you can put your, your body on that guy and screen them from the ball so that we can grab it and run. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's certain things that we do every day that, like I said, aid to, to helping us in that element of the game. Well, I, I think the science part and just the angles and the trajectories, like you said, is so important is just knowing where are these rebounds going to be coming from? Where's the ball coming off of the rim? And, and just even understanding that and having your players understand that, at least getting them in the right position where they recognize a lot of shorts or a lot of shots are going to go long and where they need to be and, and things of that nature. I remember joking with one of my girls that she would go for a rebound and she'd practically be under the basket and I said well the only thing you're going to do there is catch a made shot so <laughs> uh, yep. you, you might want to you want to consider doing something different there I've said that many a time to <laughs> younger players I'm like that's the only one you're going to get but yep. <laughs> that's funny so 
another thing that that you've mentioned and alluded to is, is the importance of, of your of player development and then making sure that they're prepared for different scenarios and different situations for you. So let's start with the first part here. What, what are those skills uh, within player development? I know you, talk, you touched a little bit about post moves and, and, and making sure they have those and being able to dribble. Are there some other skills that you're also intentionally focusing on with your player development? Definitely. Uh, within, within that dribbling post move shooting that I've already mentioned, a lot of that then goes back to footwork. Um, making mm -hmm. sure you're using the proper footwork, minimizing footwork, uh, one, one drill we work on a lot during the season and, and even in the off season when they're on their own, I ask them to do it, but it's just a simple jab step move that we use to get ourselves open, especially in the dribble drive, but even to set up a screen that might come off of that. But even within that, how to minimize your footwork so that you're maximizing what you can do with the ball in your hand. So footwork is very important and that goes to everything. When you have the ball in your hand, so when you're making that move to when you're in the post and you're doing your post moves, your footwork has to be on par, just really everything. So we do a lot with that. Um, shooting technique. Um, there's just a lot of things we do. We actually do a three-step shooting technique drill throughout most of our season at different times. Um, one is just one-handed shots. So the guys have that hand underneath the ball in the proper position. Another one is using the guide hand, but using it as a guide hand, not using it as part of your shot. And then ultimately the last one is making sure we have the co correct rotation. So little things like that. But then as far as on the defensive side, we do a lot again with footwork and positioning. Because if you're going to play man-to-man, -man, you have to make sure that you are in the proper position, not only to guard your person, but in order to help. Because somebody's going to get beat at some point. So you have to be able to help. Well, if that person's helping you or somebody else is getting help for, you then have to help that helper. And there's just lots of things that go into it with the understanding of the defense and the, and the footwork. Um, but then also we do mix in lots of different styles of defense. At times we've been known as a zone team. Some teams in our area think that, you know, we've been one of the better zone teams in the entire area with different philosophies that I have in the zone. And our zone isn't just a typical 2-3 or a 3-2 as most people would see it from the stands. We have some elements in there where we're trapping or we're rotating or we're doing some little nuances that, not too buddy, not really anybody else has the inside information on, but we're basically taking our zone and we're making it a man, mm -hmm. but I'm also keeping kids out of situations where I don't have a five, seven person trying to guard someone in the post where right. that's not going to be a successful situation for us. So I keep them up top where they guard the guards and I leave some of our bigger players left behind to kind of guard the post, but it's still man to man principle. So little things like that, we go on and then we're always working scenarios and situations so that that way, and it kind of goes back to what I talked about earlier with competition. That way, if we're in a game down one and there's no timeouts, we know exactly what to do. If we're in a game, we're down one and we have one timeout, we know exactly what we're going to be doing. If we're down one and we have multiple timeouts, we know what we're going to be setting up or mm -hmm. our set plays. We have probably, I'd say five to six, just base set plays that we can run in any set, whether we're 4-1, 5-0. Uh, we could even be in any other kind of conventional, maybe a double post, whatever. But we can run just base sets. It could be a, a weak side post up. It could be a strong side post up. It could be a back screen. You know, there's various things we're doing. But these are just great, like, in the collegiate game or the NBA game, they would be great late shot clock or late game situations. But for us in the high school game that doesn't have that, it's like an end of quarter situation or maybe late in the game, we need a for sure bucket and we'll go one of these set plays. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the little things like that, you have to prep. You have to prepare those. You can't just kind of run those. You have to run those over and over and over, almost to the point where those kids can do those in their sleep because sometimes they have to, they have to work every time you run them. Right. And they just really do. They can't be a kind of, oh, we almost made it work, coach. No, they have to work. <laughs> That's why you have them. Um, so little things like that ultimately work. But then I had an assistant coach for me, and just tell you a little story. Mm-hmm. But I had an assistant coach that coached with us back in the 2012 season. I coached against him. He, he played for a rival uh, high school when I first started coaching. Tremendous player. Um, they had a great team. But then he was a student teacher with us and came on. And he wanted to coach. And, and I was so glad he came aboard because he's a great mind of the game. It was just great to talk with him and just get his percep- perception on things and so forth. And we're chatting one day. And he's like, hey, Coach K, why, why are all your drills like two on two and, and three on three? And why don't we do so much? Why aren't we doing a lot of five on five drills? And I just said to him, like, well, if you look around the gym, first of all, we don't have a lot of guys to do five on five drills. And second of all, what we try to do is break down what's going to happen in a game. A lot of times in a game, it's not five on five. They might be doing something to two or three of our players. Mm -hmm. So we have to be able to react to that situation, those two or three players. Everybody else will react as as we get into the five on five stuff. So we used to, when we still do it, a lot of two on two, three on three, and four on four drills, because in a game, Usually that's how the other team is manipulating you is they're manipulating those two or three guys on your team. And so he, he was very insightful. He's like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. But he had that question. Yeah. So for us, we do a lot of those. We do a lot of two on two, three on three and four on four scenario situations, breakdowns. So that guys are ready for that when it happens in a game. So those are just some of the, the player development things that we really focus on kind of day in and day out. And so that when they're with their friends, they can still work on some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, I like with the scenarios and situations and you talk about breaking it down in the, the um, two-on-two, three-on-three, four-on-four is, is that you emphasize making sure that they're being not only run the right way, but also run with the correct amount of intensity because if you're just ru- going through the motions and practice, that's not an authentic replication of what the game is going to look like. And so I think that kind of reiterates your point about your, your practices being more intense than the games and making sure you're running those situations with high intensity so that they are authentic to what the players are going to experience in the game. Um, oh, and definitely. And just yeah. one thing to add to that, and I'll let you go on to your next yeah, question. Yeah, go ahead. Just to add to that, the nice thing about a two-on-two, three-on-three, four-on-four situation is you can put goods versus goods then. You don't have mm-hmm. to put ones versus your twos or ones versus threes or whatever else. You can put your number one defender against your number one offensive player in a drill like that, and you're yeah. really going to get an offensive <laughs> situation. Yeah. That's the nice thing about those kind of drills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll definitely create a competitive environment uh, do, doing it that way. So one of the things that you mentioned that was really important for you, and I wanted, I wanted to touch on it because I, I agree with you, and that's in footwork. And I think that it's easy for, for me and it's easy sometimes for coaches to, they, they focus a lot on what offense they're going to run, what defense are we going to run, you know, these drills, this, that, and whatever. And, and sometimes I feel this way because I think I've done it is neglected footwork. What have you seen have, have been either common mistakes or things that you've had to correct or that you've seen that are coming up over and over again in terms of, of poor footwork that, that players are demonstrating and, and what needs to be fixed with it? Yeah, great question. You know, the first thing I look at with our players is 
you know, when it comes to the footwork of getting to the dribble, and we always talk about this with the dribble, is like if you're not dribbling with a purpose, then we're not dribbling. There has to be a purposeful meaning to it. So therefore, the same goes with your footwork. So if your footwork is going to be to kind of go around this screen, that's not good footwork. I want direct line. I want direct sight to the rim or to the area that we're going to attack. So if I got the ball on the right wing and I'm going to attack my player to the lane side off of a screen, when that screen comes, I want to send my jab to the baseline and I want to come off that screen as tight as I can because now I'm going to put that other defensive player, are they going to help? Or are they going to stay with their player who's setting the screen? Well, if they help, now we can roll to the basket. And we've now pinned a smaller player as we go. Well, then that player who set the screen also has to have great footwork in their roll to the basket and to pin their player. And then we have to have a direct line into the area that we want to attack to create space to make that pass. But all that stuff comes with repetition. So yeah. well, I think when I was a younger coach, I completely agree with you. I think I... I think I took footwork a little bit for granted. And then as I got a little bit older and maybe wiser, whatever we call it, but I started to realize that that footwork is so integral. It has to be on point and on time all the time if it's going to work like you want it to. Yeah. Because even if it's off for a little bit, you're going to watch film and go, oh, that was so close. But because we did it this way, it didn't work. Yeah. So that footwork is super important. And it goes to everything, even post moves. I've seen kids with average footwork kind of get to post moves and i've seen kids with maybe average moves but great footwork get to get to shots whenever they wanted so mm -hmm. footwork is very important well yeah you, you, every step that, that you said every t step that you take has to be intentional and i, I know that we we still see uh over dribbling a lot and and, and footwork and and movements that aren't really conducive to to getting us where we want to and and trying to tighten those things up i think is super important in making sure that you know you're tight with your screens and that you're you're moving with a purpose dribbling with a purpose and all that kind of ties into footwork exactly. so um for coaches who feel that they're under a bit of a time crunch and they don't have enough time to to get all the things that they want in and they don't have enough time to develop the skills that they want to for, for whatever reason. Maybe they don't have the summer work. Maybe, maybe they just took the job. Uh, who knows what the situation might, might, they might encounter. But for coaches who feel like they're under this time crunch, what, what skills do you think would be the most beneficial for those coaches to be emphasizing to get the most out of their players if they really feel like they're, they're kind of crunched for time? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. As far as, you know, and so I would say I'm going to put it in a, a list of five things. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say number one, and this is how I was 14 years ago when I took the position and probably even when I was in junior Like, you've got to be able to play defense. If you cannot defend the other team, it doesn't matter what you do offensively. It doesn't matter what you do over the course of four quarters. You're not going to be in that game. Yeah. Your defense has to be spot on. You have to have a defensive philosophy, and then ultimately you have to have the, the drills and the scenarios and the schematics of what you want to look like, whether it's a zone. Because you can a lot of people, and I hear complaining, why are teams playing zones here and there and whatever? Well, some zones aren't really zones, and if you ever look at a good man, it's really a zone because mm -hmm. you're taking away certain things. So to me, those people, I don't understand the argument. But – Whatever you pick as your, your defense, stick with it, get really good at it, and make that your, your, your calling card. From there, 
you have to be able to have kids that can dribble, post, and shoot. I've always told my kids this when I walk into a gym because I'll see right away. It could be the first day of practice. It could be a bunch of younger kids at a gym, you know, in the gym during lunchtime. And they're out there about three-point line, maybe 30 feet out, some even a half court, launching up <laughs> And I walk in, I go, hey, uh, if I have a briefcase and inside this briefcase is a million dollars and you can have it, it's all yours, where are you going to shoot from? And where does every kid walk to? Play? <laughs> yeah. And that's where games are won. I mean, that's the difference. So if you can score in there, you watch the collegiate game, you watch the professional game, where do they want to get to? They want to get to the rim. Okay, if they can't get to the rim because the defense collapses, then they'll kick out and there's world-class shooters out there that just thrive being wide open. So that's really where the game has gotten to. Can we get to the rim or can we get to the wide open jump shot? Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say work on those skills, your ability to dribble, your ability to post up, and your ability to shoot. Yeah. And if you add that to the defensive part of the game, I think you're going to be onto something. Right. Well, I, I love that you mentioned defense defense first because you can't can't be a transition team. You're not going to really be getting out in a transition if you're not getting stops and, and rebounds on the defensive end. And what, what you said about zone it, it is really true. I, I definitely understand some of the, the concerns that people have about zone, but you are correct in that not all zones, some zones are in, in a sense, man, you know, we have matchup zones and we have things of that nature. And, and a zone really still can't work effectively unless you have good man-to-man -man principles anyway. And so um, I, I definitely un understand and agree with you in that sense. Um, and so I know that there, there's, you know, tons more that, that we could we could have get into, but I'm glad that, that we're able to at least kind of have this conversation um, in, in a general sense to kind of give coaches a bit of an idea and some sort of a template and a thought process if they are taking over that small school. So to wrap up, Coach, I want to talk about a coaching moment of yours, something that you've been through in your years of coaching, a moment that you think that others listening would be able to learn from. Yeah, great question. Uh, and there's a moment that sticks right out. And I've told this story to some of our players that weren't around when this happened, but it was a great, a great situation. Uh, it was early in my high school coaching career. I want to say it was in my third season. Uh, it was late in the season, maybe a couple weeks to go in our regular season. It probably was early, late January, early February. Um, we had a really nice team that year, and we're playing at Pearl City. Um, it's their homecoming, packed house. You know, you can't even breathe. You can't even hear in this gym because it's just crazy. Two good teams. Um, playing just neck and neck basketball is literally back and forth. Um, fast forward to the end, they get the ball late, down one. Uh, I think they had six seconds left. Um, they were able to pat inbound it. Uh, it's, it felt like they took more than six seconds when I went back and reviewed it with my film because we could still see the clock. It definitely took more than six seconds. <laughs> Um, but a shot went up because it was so loud there. Honestly, you couldn't hear the buzzer. I, I just remember it live. I couldn't hear anything, but I went back and I had to review it. But they took a shot just after the uh, buzzer was sounding, but you couldn't hear it. And a kid tipped it in and we lost the game. Mm. And at no point did I right away, did, at no point did I blame officials. Did I do anything other than, oh, we lost the game. And I know our kids went back to the locker room very upset. They were like, Coach, that, that was after the buzzer. I know it was. And I, and I said to them, I said, guys, 
What should we have done? What could we have done? Did they make the shot at the buzzer? Did they make the shot that they took? And they're all like, no, coach, they didn't make it. They, they tipped it in. I'm like, what did we need to do to make sure that we would have won that game? And they all pretty much in unison were like, well, we should have boxed out. Yes, exactly. We controlled ourselves. If he hit that shot, there was nothing we could control. But we've got to box out. We've got to do the things that we do better. And then we also missed, I think, a couple free throws down the stretch. I think we missed a, a bunny down the stretch on a beautiful play. And, and that was my sentiment to the guys was we have to control what we control. We can't control the other things. Yep. Never can we control the officials. Never can we control the other team other than we have to try to stop them. But we can control what we can control. And that was my message for that team. And they all, as soon as I said that, they, I could just see the whole – weight of that loss lifted off their shoulders and they're like you know what coach you're right and when we got back to practice that next Monday it was so much more focused that team ultimately went on to win my first regional here at this school um, the first regional the school has won in 20 years since the 80s um, and I think that was a key moment for us I could have easily went into that locker room and blamed everybody and anybody but that wasn't going to solve the situation what was going to solve the situation was we had to take ownership in us and what we need to do better and be better. And I've done that from that day on. Anytime we've had tough losses or even close wins, I always talk to the guys, what could we have done different to make it better? Yeah. And we, keep, we keep that same theme throughout. And I think that's something for a lot of coaches to think about as they go forward is how do you react to situations? Yeah. How do you react and what can you do to make your team better? Well, it, it's a great message in terms of all, all, all you can do is we can control ourselves and we can control what, what we need to do. And it's so easy, I think, to get caught up in what happens at, at the end of a game in some late game situation and, and forget that there were so many other possessions that occurred that game too. And, and all of those possessions were worth two and three points, uh, whether uh, we did something right or incorrect and, and we can get so focused on something that happened at the end and, and, and lose sight of all the other opportunities that we had to control and that were in our control. Um, and and I, I, think that, I think that message also it's kind of empowering, isn't it? It's kind of saying like, here, we have all this control. Like we have the ability to fix this. Like we can do something different. Like it's not, it's not up to anyone else. You know, it's, it's up to us if we want to make that change. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, to wrap up, I always like to, to give coaches uh, what I call the, the 60 second soapbox to kind of give a closing thought, a final thought, kind of wrap up uh, anything that, that you've already addressed or get out a new idea that you want to leave the listeners with. So, so coach, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you the floor here for, for your 60 second soapbox. Perfect. Um, you know, the one thing I thought about was just, you know, support. Um, all the people that support a program or they're involved in a program, I don't think get enough credit. You know, when I think about my program, I'm at a small school. I mean, I'm probably at about as small as they come. There's probably not too many smaller in most states. But when you talk about your janitor staff that have always got your facility top notch and ready to go, when you talk about some of the people who work in the offices, the secretaries, all those other people, and then you go down to your parents. I don't think the parents get enough support for all the things that they do for your program um, and for the kids and allowing those kids to be part of something special. You know, I really think there's a lot of people out there that don't necessarily uh, get the pat on the back that they so rightfully deserve or, or, or things like that. So I would just like to say for all the people out there that do something for a sports program, whether it's a football program, a basketball program, a softball program, you name it program at any high school 
or college or anywhere, basically, thank you for all that you do. And I'm saying that from myself, but I'm saying that probably from everybody that you work with um, because they do a lot um, behind the scenes that we don't necessarily get a chance to talk about. But I just want to say thanks to all those people who do so much for all the programs around the, you know, the United States and probably the world too. But that's just one thing that I'm passionate about is thanking those people that help us. Uh, yeah, that, that's great. Absolutely. There's so much that goes into us being able to do what, what we're able to do and, and just, just recognizing those individuals, thanking them, um, and, and making sure that we're always giving our appreciation. I think that's great. I know, uh, you know, if, if anyone even holds the door for our girls, they know to say thank you to that person as they're walking by and just always exactly. making sure we appreciate uh, the, those who do all that beh behind the scenes work. I, I think that's phenomenal. Um, this is great. It was awesome to, to see your enthusiasm and, and the pride that you have uh, in, in a small school environment and shining such a positive light on, on the unique opportunities and benefits. And as I said at the beginning, you know, making it big where you are and, and making it a big deal where you are and, and not having any excuses and controlling what you can control and and i definitely think our listeners were able to get that out of that conversation so thank you for for being for giving that insight for bringing uh your opinions your enthusiasm and, and all of the knowledge that you have uh coach k i want to thank you so much it, it was a pleasure good luck going forward thank you and i want to thank you for allowing me to to come onto the podcast and and for all the stuff that you're doing also for the great game of basketball and allowing us to share what we have um, to the masses and doing all the stuff that you're doing. So I want to thank you as well. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. It's a lot of fun. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. This was another edition of the Basketball Teacher Podcast. Thank you so much. We will see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Basketball Teacher Podcast. Make sure to connect with us on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, or reach us directly through email at basketballteacherpodcast at gmail.com. Take care, be safe, and we'll see you next time.